Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Hello, today I am honored to have Dr. Jill Blakeway on the show. Jill is a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, a licensed and board-certified acupuncturist and clinical herbalist. Jill founded the Yanova Center in 1999 and currently acts as clinic director alongside her husband, Noah Rubenstein. As a practitioner, she is known for intuitive approach to Chinese medicine and particularly for her skills as an acupuncturist and energy healing. Jill has written a few books, but today we are here to talk about her book, Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. In it, Jill describes what it means personally and scientifically to be an energy healer and draws on cutting edge research to explain how acupuncture and energy medicine work. Hello, Jill. Hello, Mala. Thank you for having me on your (laughs) podcast. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. And we have a, a dear friend together, and that's Madhu Anziani. And we will talk about that a little bit later as we get into your interview. Yes, he's in my book, Energy Medicine. He's yes, yes, he is. Yes. He is. I interviewed him a few months ago. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that, but it's, it's pretty it's fascinating. So Jill, what prompted you to go on this healing journey and write this beautiful book? I know you say it's, it, it's very you know, um, scientific, yet it's also somewhat a, a memoir for you. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, you know, when I first set off to write it, what HarperCollins wanted was a book um, uh, about energy medicine that didn't take away its mystery and poetry, but gave a scientific basis for it for skeptical people or people who hadn't really thought about this area and were just sort of instinctively assumed it was very woo and out there. Um, uh, And my interest in it, I'm an acupuncturist, so I am an energy worker. Acupuncture is a form of energy work. Um, But in a way, Way, I set off to explain me to me, Myla. I've always had very strong energy that comes out of my hands that people can feel. And um, I, um, uh, my patients did well under my care. And I began to ask the questions that I think any thoughtful practitioner would ask, like, um, is it placebo? <laughs> you know, what if yes. I have very impressive feeling energy that comes out of my hands that literally does nothing, but people are very impressed by it. And then they, you know, um, it prompts a self-healing mechanism, which I think is a very valid question. Um, uh, and so I set off around the world to talk to healers and also um, um, uh, scientists about what are the prompts that prompt our body to heal. And as you know, because you've read the book, I then stumbled on um, information 
situation that completely changed my life because I began to understand yeah. that we are connected through a very broad field of energy that is very similar to what Chinese philosophy calls the Tao. And I had studied Taoism in grad school, but I hadn't really understood it in a very practical way, even though I was practicing as an acupuncturist. And I suddenly understood that we were part of this active field of consciousness, shared consciousness, that is the Tao, and that our physicality is really just the sort of end of that. <laughs> um, uh, right. And that we have awareness um, that that is as large as our shared consciousness and as tiny awareness in every single cell. Because every cell in our body knows who it is and what it is and what it's supposed to do. And that requires an intelligence, not an intellectual intelligence, but an awareness and a um, propensity to come back into balance. And that is true in the broader Tao, the energy we feel we live in, but also in our bodies. It's the bit, you know, Marla, that we take for granted that our bodies will, you know, we get a bug bite and we have a histamine reaction and, you know, uh, our bodies right. are intelligent in their response to various stresses. So I went off to explain me to me and started to realize that I had stumbled on information that was much bigger and much more fascinating. Right. Well, I know you talk about, you say we've seen the physiological effects from acupuncture for, for you know, centuries, but you decided to dive deeper and really look at the electromagnetic force. And I know at Un University of Vermont, there were some studies going on. So can you talk that, about that a little bit? And I'm really fascinated by the embryo, how they connect with themselves that I heard you talk about in an interview. Yes, um, I, I, you know, I was an, uh, I am an acupuncturist, and I think acupuncturists in the West. Um, particularly, but also in China, have wanted to explain what we're doing biophysically um, uh, at the expense of looking at the energetics uh, of the practice. So as you say, the physiological um, effects of acupuncture are quite easy to measure. You can do MRIs and show that it affects the brain. You can do thermal in imaging and show that it reduces inflammation. You can do um, Doppler ultrasound and show that it affects uh, circulation. Um, but I was interested in um, how it worked electromagnetically. And you're absolutely right. The, my first sort of inkling of, uh, it, you know, writing a book is like following a little trail. It's like being a detective, right. really fun. But at the University of Vermont Medical School, uh, um, a doctor called Dr. Helen Langevin had done research on acupuncture points. And what she had found, we always knew that acupuncture points on MRI look a little different to the tissue around them, only marginally, but they're, they're much more innovated and they they have um, blood vessels that kind of curl around them. Um, uh, but she found that they had a greater pull force um, than other points in the body. Not a huge amount, but by about 20%. And um, she also found by doing uh, studies on rat abdominal wall um, that when the acupuncture points are put in, we twist the needle um, to get what we call qi, dirty, uh, at the needle, which is kind of a heavy sensation. And what is happening is that connective tissue is winding around the needle like spaghetti on a fork. Um, and right. it's becoming more electroconductive. Connective tissue has a high collagen content, so it has a high water content, so it is electroconductive. But this makes it more electroconductive. And that effect lasts for the whole treatment. The, the, the um, tissue doesn't unwind until the needle gets taken out. 
So I asked myself, Myla, why? Like, why <laughs> Why do they have a 50% yeah. rate of full, full force? And why do the acupuncture points do that? And it turns out, I think, that the answer lies in embryology. And when we were embryos, we don't give this a lot of thought, but embryos have to communicate internally with themselves somehow. And, you know, as fully right. formed people, um, our communication systems tend to be the cardiovascular system, you know, proteins through the blood or the central nervous system out into the peripheral nervous system. But embryos are communicating long before they have developed um, uh, those systems. And um, the way they do it is they do it electrically. And there is a lovely video on YouTube called Electric Frog Face from Tufts yes. University that shows a frog embryo creating itself. And it's like lightning going across its face. And then it turns out, Marla, that in order to do this, they create little areas of specialized tissue that are nodes that the next part of the embryo um, uh, buds off from. So for instance, there's one at the elbow and then the forearm buds off from that. Um, uh, and if you compare a map of the major acupuncture points, they are at the same place as these embryological nodes. So it seems wow. to be, I know, I said that when I was reading the research. I was like, good, no. Yeah. Because as an acupuncturist, um, uh, you know, if, if, if for over 20 years, I hadn't known that. Um, I just knew that they worked. And um, sometimes I didn't necessarily know why. Um, so, um, uh, it, you know, that was a big sort of step forward to me. But I think what it means is that the um, specialized tissue that was used to create us in some ways that created a little electrical temperature uh, gradient, a little electrical gradient to, um, right. to spark off the rest of uh, you know, that bit of the body, it can be used to regulators. And that is why they work. And that's why their electromagnetic properties are important. And then, as you know, in the book, Myla, I started to think about, you know, I had worked in a hospital um, and we were very good at giving pain relief to women in labor and delivery, which is, was a passion of mine, is to this day looking after pregnant women. And um, uh, we would do a point on the ankle, just above the ankle, and we could see that it dilated the cervix. We could show it in the hospital because we had all the equipment to measure. And the doctors would say to me, why? Why does that work? And I would say, right. I know this is horrible, but I don't know. <laughs> and now I do. It <laughs> turns out now I do. Because the, um, the communication from that sort of little electrical impulse by the acupuncture needles would appear to travel along the fascia. And fascia, as you know, is, yes. is having its moment. People are much more interested in fascia than they used to be. But it's everywhere in your body. And it is connective tissue. And it is highly electroconductive. In fact, it's what's called piezoelectric. It creates electrical energy. And so if you line up the meridians with the fascial planes, they are in the same place. Um, uh, so, um, it would appear that a signal on the ankle reaches the cervix through the, through the fascia. Um, and oh, I, by the end of writing that chapter, I was immersed in this, as you can imagine. I felt like I understood <laughs> the practice I'd been practicing <laughs> so much. Right. And then I wanted to explain it to other acupuncturists and to people and, you know, just generally get the word out. <laughs> wow, that's so fascinating. So, so then the, the science part of the acupuncture, it's so, um, it's just so there. So let's talk about 
the science of other sorts of energy healing because i know that was a little bit of a leap for you and they kind of but but you had a couple of things happen that made you realize that this energy healing really is you know it really does work so tell us tell us about that well i you know still wondered what i was doing in the clinic when my hands would you know people would feel this heat coming from my hands. right um so i had them i submitted my body to science myla and i had them um put an <laughs> eeg on my brain and an ekg on my heart and it turns out that what i'm doing uh, and i'm not remotely special so um uh, that's that's what people can do, um, uh, probably because I had wanted to help the patients so much. I, I trained my body um, inadvertently to have my heart and my brain go at the same frequency. And to do that, I slow right. down my brain a lot in the clinic. Um, and I always joke with the patients that the diagnostic bit is the smart bit. And then I go into the flow and I do acupuncture. Right. <laughs> and it's because I'm slowing down my brain. Um, and then when I create what's called internal coherence, a heart-brain coherence, um, and my heart and my brain go at the same frequency, the patient's heart goes at the same frequency as mine, which I think is lovely. And um, they do that thanks to something called mirror neurons. It's not actually as woo as it sounds. And they, um, uh, at that point, it would appear that information gets passed one from the other. And so right. I, um, I realized I didn't need the needles to do the healing long before I dared try <laughs> not to do that because I thought, well, I have a license to practice acupuncture and I'm well known as an acupuncturist. So I was like, well, who am I if I'm not, you know, using needles? Um, but um, I, uh, I went on a journey and I described this in the book to find out if the the frequency coming out of, say, Reiki practitioners or Qigong masters' hands can be measured, and yes. it can. And in fact, Qigong masters who are particularly well-trained um, uh, and have a lot of experience by the time they become a Qigong master produce a frequency that is a thousand times greater than the strongest frequency that normally comes out of the body, which is the heart. Um, and wow. it's a very low frequency. Um, uh, and interestingly, at the time I was discovering this, because ask and you shall receive information, I feel, I had a patient yes. who I was extremely fond of who broke both his legs in a skiing accident. And um, I uh, visited him at home because obviously he could not hobble into the office. I would put the needles in and his legs would shake. And he got better remarkably quickly um, and surprised all his doctors. And he healed, um, given his age, extraordinarily quickly. And um, uh, I realized that the best orthopedic hospitals also put electrical energy through bone to heal soft tissue right. and bone. Um, and it is the same frequency that Qigong masters and Reiki masters are emitting so um uh we we all just need to talk to each other because we all have pieces of right is what it is absolutely and do you think that you know as i'm listening to you i love all of the exercises that you give in your book that people can just do on their own and to help heal themselves what do you think the implications could be if we or maybe you're you're doing some of this already um for for children for them to learn how to self-heal emotionally, you know, even physically. I mean, that just seems like that would have such huge 
implications yes. for? Well, I put exercises through the book, Myla, because I wanted people to know that anyone could do this. Um, I, I had a section right. in the book on charlatans. And one of the things I found was that um, for the most part, the people I was most concerned about weren't people who were faking having a gift. They were people who knew how to do this and were using it to manipulate um, and have power over other people. Um, and so right. I realized that the way out of that was to explain that I, A, I'm not remotely special, but also that we can all do this. We're all special. <laughs> um, right, right, exactly. Um, and, and you have the power, you know, you can, you can do it yourself. So that's why I gave exercises in the book and things like that. And I think, um, uh, you know, this form of healing, which is so ancient and which has stood the test of time, um, is available to all of us. It isn't, it can't solve everything. Uh, and for that reason, no, of course it's not. food in some ways. But what it can is prompt your body's awareness, that cellular awareness we were talking about earlier on, um, to you know each cell to remember where it is and who it is and what it is. Um, and I think one of the messages that of, of the book is that we are all connected. We are literally a shared consciousness in the Tao that is individuated into the physical. And I feel that if children understood that, um, uh, earlier, that would make a big difference to how we project and how we other other people. Um, uh, it would right. make a huge difference to the way society becomes so fragmented. And I think mm -hmm. if children understood how much we communicate through that field, you know, so for instance, at the University of Connecticut, they put two separate people in separate MRIs in different rooms. And when one thought healing thoughts about the other, their brainwaves synced and they could see it on MRI. Well, we can right. do that. Um, and so we can put very positive energy out there. We can put very negative energy out there um, and people can feel it and it affects um, people. And it also affects our relationship with our collective consciousness with what I call source energy with God in some ways. And so, you know, the more frightened and anxious and angry you get, the tighter you become and the less you're able to do this, you know, this work. And the more loving and compassionate and open you are, the more expanded you become, the more in line with that consciousness, that collective consciousness you are, and the more that intelligence, that awareness works in your life. And um, I would love to work with kids, I think, um, about yeah. that. This reminds me a little bit. I, I interviewed Karen Newell about sacred acoustics, and she was talking about exactly the same thing when your feet it works. And actually, I, I have a question for you a little bit later um, about when you're feeling love and compassionate or you're feeling fear and anger, it other people around you, they absorb that, you know, and it carries out into the world. So, so wouldn't it be beautiful if before school started or breakfast started or <laughs> scratching the back in the morning started and just have a child, you know, to start with some exercises like that. It just could be so beautiful. So just to segue a little bit, and it kind of goes hand in hand what we were just talking about. Um, Princeton, I know that there was a study at Princeton that really 
was was kind of profound for you. So you, can you tell us about that? Well, it is actually a continuation of what we're talking about. I, you know, I began yes. to understand that we could connect in clinic, that my patients were starting to have the same frequency of heart um, frequency as me and things like that. So I could see that that was measurable. But um, I tell this story in the book, in chapter two, but um, uh, at physics, uh, uh, in the engineering department at Princeton, which I always assume uh, is the least woo department. You know, I, <laughs> I would think that so. those are the people who are actually making physical machines. Um, they had a grad student, a female grad student, who wondered if she could make a machine that could be affected by the human mind. And they didn't think for a moment she'd pull this off, um, but she did. And to cut a long story short, she, uh, thanks to decaying atomic material, she created a machine that spits out random numbers. And what she found is that when people focus on it with intention and feeling, those numbers become less random. And if a lot of people with the same feeling focus on it, um, those numbers become less random in a way that is statistically impossible. And in the engineering department, they were so blown away by these frankly anomalous results that they set up a lab called the Pear Lab, which ran for um, uh, quite a long time um, to um, uh, do research into this. Because obviously, if you can use your thoughts and your feelings to change a machine, you can use your thoughts uh, and your feelings to change other physical things too and change reality. Absolutely. And so they created these little random event generators of what they called. They created portable versions of them and they, they um, the work continues. It's now run by um, a, a foundation called the Global Consciousness Project. Um, and they've taken them to the Trump inaugural and yoga retreats and things like that. And what they have found is that the biggest connector is love and compassion. And when people mm -hmm. share love and compassion, that really does have a profound effect on the machine statistically. But fear is not far behind. So when people connect in fear, which is such a contractive energy, um, it also um, uh, affects our reality. It affects the machine. And I thought that was an important thing to um, um, talk about because um, we live in very right. fearful times and um, uh, you know that that contractive energy you see it work on a national level I've seen my own country um, Britain um, become much more fearful and contract on the world stage I've seen that happen in America where I live um, so you know um, uh, we need to be aware that fear affects other people and our reality and it spreads a bit like a virus Right. And the story about 9-11, that was really fascinating. <laughs> yes. Could you well, they had, you have so many great they, stories. Yes, they, they had these um, REGs all over the world at uh, universities spitting out numbers back to Princeton as part of their pair lab studies, uh, just seeing what would happen, really, and looking for patterns and things like that. And on September the 11th, four hours before the planes hit the Twin Towers, all over the world, the REGs started to um, become less random. And that went on for the whole of that day. And people always wow. ask me, why four hours before? And the truth is, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, it's often used to discredit this research, but I don't think it should be. I think it's either um, a, a sort of collective premonition or the fact right. that time is not really linear. That's a construct. Or, in fact, that uh, the, um, uh, the um, terrible crimes that were about to be committed were already 
in process. These people were already driving to the airport. They were already, right. um, you know, they'd already set off. So this whole thing was in motion. It's just that nobody knew. Um, and I think it's possibly a combination of those three, although I'm no expert on that kind of thing, so I don't know. But that was their finding, uh, uh, that when the whole world looked in the same direction with great compassion, it showed on the REGs all over the world. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so let's talk about sound healing a little bit. Um, you have Madhu Anziani in your book, and I interviewed Madhu a couple of months ago, so I encourage my listeners to go back. It was an amazing story. So um, could you share that with us, please? Well, a lot of this information starts to come down to um, how information is carried on a wave. Um, uh, and of course, sound is a, a, a wave. And, um, it, you know, in the book, I looked at uh, some of the most ancient mantras um, and how they affect different parts of the brain. Um, and you can right. show it on, you can make people sing mantras in an MRI and show <laughs> sound Love it. different parts of the brain, which is so interesting. And I'm always interested how ancient cultures came upon things that we can now see are extremely worthwhile. Uh, right. You know, that we all arrive from different frames of reference at the same points um, uh, fascinates me because I practice Chinese medicine in the West uh, as a Westerner. So it, it, it always blows my mind. But Madhu, I was looking, uh, you know, to 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 look at this from a patient's point of view. And as I'm sure Madhu told you um, uh, when he was interviewed, he had um, a spinal cord injury. He fell out of the window yes. when he was in college and he was told that he would be tetraplegic. And Madhu lay in the hospital and he made a sound and he, he felt it through his body and he had enough presence of mind. And he was only 23 at this point um, to know that if he could feel it, then he had some nervous system left and he started to tone and sing mantras. And someone bought him a Tibetan prayer wheel and his father would hold him up and move his arm. And um, uh, over time, uh, he managed to heal his spinal cord injury. Um, and I liked this story because he didn't do it alone. You know, I, I, I wanted to right. move away from this magical thinking around energy medicine. There was no doubt that Madhu had great surgeons. He was in San Francisco at UCSF. He had physical therapists. He had really good nursing. He had a very supportive family. Um, but the thing that made the difference in Madhu's case was that he created vibration by a sound in his body and that created connection and the other thing that struck me about Madhu when I interviewed him was he said um, you know various people told him that he should just accept you know being a tetraplegic so he could get on with being the best tetraplegic that he could be and he said to me you know I wasn't stupid Jill I, I knew that I would probably end up in a wheelchair, but I never allowed that belief to permeate my being and I tried to live right. in joy. And that is a direct quote. And I was blown away um, by the presence of mind that took for a 23 year old college student to make a decision 
not to let his um, uh, diagnosis permeate that deeply without being in denial about it and still in that really horrible situation um, choose to live in joy. And so I always think of Madhu's recovery as being part a miracle of modern medicine, part um, a, an extraordinary example of how sound creates connection, how that wave created by sound creates connection in the body and in particular the nervous system, and part about how um, uh, your own attitude and your own beliefs right. affect your healing. Um, so I, uh, I, I think he's a wonderful young man. Um, and um, uh, I was really happy to tell his, his story in the book. And he is, of course, now a sound healer, as you would be <laughs> if you had had this profound experience. So you can go and find Maldu Anziani online and listen to his beautiful music and um, uh, you know what a gift he is to the world. Yes, and he also is a shamanic practitioner. And you have said that this journey of yours, it's very much like a classic shamanic journey. Can you elaborate? Well, you know, the shamanic journey traditionally um, has its struggles and out of the struggle <laughs> comes, you know, <laughs> comes some wisdom and, um, uh, and much of it is internal and, uh, and a sort of self-struggle. And I, I, you know, I tell my own, I want to be very honest about myself in this book. It's partially memoir. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I sort of discuss my struggles and what I wasn't very good at as a practitioner and, you know, um, how I learned, which was often the hard way, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. If there was a painful way of learning a lesson for a long time, I learned it that way. And, uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and, and also, it necessitated deep reflection. And, I, you know, I think if you look at, say, Jesus and the Buddha, one of the noticeable things about both their stories is that they went away for a while and came back wiser. <laughs> right. They went inside themselves. And I think the meaning of that is at some point I kept taking courses and I kept, you know, trying to learn and reading books and thinking and thinking. And eventually you work out that this is already in you. But to do that, you have to be quiet and you have to shut out um, a, a lot of the noise in our day to day lives and the pressures. And, you know, so I think of Jesus going away to the wilderness or I think of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. And I realized that they were um, they were on a deep journey to realize, oh, I am. I, I am a little microcosm. I am. I am. I am a microcosm of the macrocosm. And um, I think it dawns on people. It took me ages. <laughs> but, it, you know, it dawns on people at different times. But what I realized um, is that in my training, you're always taught in Chinese philosophy that human beings are the connection between heaven and earth. And because I'd had a traditional Judeo-Christian upbringing, heaven was a long way away in my mind. Um, it, right. You know, past clouds, uh, up, clearly up. Um, and, and so I didn't really <laughs> understand how we were the connection, but I sort of, you know, went along with it. Um, but as I worked with people and as I worked on myself, I began to realize we are physical bodies nourished by the earth. We're really only physical because we're on the earth. We have rippled out of right. the Tao, the, the vast field of intelligence into the physical, and we will ripple back down at some point. And we are filled with awareness. 
and we, we've talked a couple of times about cellular awareness. Uh, you know, we are filled with awareness. Uh, uh, we have consciousness. And we mistake that consciousness for our mind all the time. But when we're quiet, which is why we need to do introspection, if you meditate, after a while, you can watch your mind. And you, you know, right. it, it eventually dawns on you to ask, I wonder who's doing the watching then. <laughs> and the, the person yes. who's doing the watching is a consciousness that is part of something greater. And so you start to not see the separation in the same way. Um, and I yeah. think that was, you know, really the heart of Jesus's teaching. Um, and obviously, right. um, people use it to feel separate the whole time because that's human beings. <laughs> you know, we can't that's, that's human to experience duality and then we kind of hate it and we other each other and, and do all that stuff, which I totally understand because I'm human too. Um, and I do it as well. Um, uh, and it was at the heart of the Buddhist teachings was this lack of separation. Um, and the right. reason that Jesus could perform miracles was because he had completely transcended this, um, this separateness, this separate self. And I met people who weren't necessarily Jesus, but I met healers who also were very well on their way to transcending that idea of a separate self, um, particularly when I went to Japan. Um, and in the book, I, I head off to Japan to meet some really interesting healers, uh, a monk called Hiriki Abe and a yogi called Master Kawakami. And um, both of them had, um, uh, uh, both of them were lovely, lovely human beings, just full of warmth and compassion and kindness. And they immediately made people feel safe. Um, but a lot of that came from their lack of judgment, which came from their lack of um, a, a separate self. And that's yes, that no ego. So that is wow. sort of what I learned along the way. And that is the shamanic journey. You struggle yes, yes. the hard way. Life whips you around. Right. Uh, and then right. eventually you decide to go inwards rather than looking outward. Um, for it is really interesting to think of. I think of sometimes getting off the stage and just watching, yes. you know, when you say just... Yeah, just watching, watching the story, watching the, the drama go yes. by with a quiet mind. Yes. So can you tell us about you and um, Neil Donald Walsh, the author of Conversations with God? I know he counseled you on spirituality and healing, and I'm just fascinated about about that relationship. I just love that, love that book that he Neil wrote. is an extraordinary man. And um, <clears throat> I tell this story in the book, but I am um, in the middle of all my struggles. Uh, you know, I'd started an acupuncture practice in New York and New York is a brutal city. And I had just thought that if I showed up with an open heart and helped people that the world would pile in to support me. <laughs> right. And of course that is not quite, you know, and for a while <laughs> I was so boundaryless that I was ripped off at every corner. Um, mm. <laughs> I once had an office manager who stole ten thousand dollars. I mean, I was just like I—I I was lost, and I was angry and uh, miserable. And I decided that I would make a documentary about God. And this is of looking externally for what is in fact internal yeah uh so i clearly i was in no position to make a documentary about god at all but i i thought it might you know help me <laughs> which is slightly self-centered um and i rang the uh, lovely mr walsh and explained to him that i wanted to make a documentary about god and i thought that as 
I love this. As he had had an actual conversation with God that maybe I should ask him some questions. And he very sweetly said to me, do you need a mentor? I think he knew straight away that I was in no position to make anything profound about God at all. And I I do. (laughs) And so, um, you know, when when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, uh, uh, which is also part of the shamanic journey. And um, uh, Neil... um, uh, counsel me during a really difficult part of my my life and I grew hugely from his teachings um and yeah. he he really um uh it, one of the things I was actually just telling my team today funnily enough now I have um 28 acupuncturists and almost 50 stuff, wow. you know, but back then it was just me <laughs> um, but um uh, he used to always ask what would love do in this situation uh, and it's such a good question in business, particularly, because love is a very expansive energy and right. one. So what would love do? Um, and love would, you know, um, uh, love isn't always mushy. Love doesn't always look very come by <laughs> Right. Love right. occasionally helps someone go to the next journey on their, you know, the next part of their journey and not um, stay on your staff but um, uh, there's a way of doing it um, and um, so I often think of Neil's words um, and um, uh, I, I reread conversations with God before I wrote this book again and I was amazed by how far I'd come on this journey that it was like a different book to me you know that feeling where you read something the first time, you get a yes. lot from it, and then you, you revisit it like 20 years later, and you're like, oh right. my goodness, how did I not even see this? Wow. Yeah, so um, uh, if you haven't read Conversations with God, people listening at home, it is um, a wonderful book. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It and, and I know that... I know that Neil, I can't remember the exact words, but something about being the greatest, grandest version of yourself. Yes. I often say that's my team too. I should pay um, lovely Neil royalties because I often quote. (laughs) I do. He wouldn't mind. He would be glad I was passing it on. Um, But, you know, I, I often say this to patients because people feel very stuck. And Neil um, bears this very lightly. And he's always like, well, you can just create the next greatest and grandest version of yourself. And I remember the first time he said it to me, I was like, I can. <laughs> I should never yeah. have said to me that life was so creative that I could just, I felt stuck and I have to do this and I can't, you know, I have to, I'm in deep obligation and things. And the thought that I had the freedom to just decide to be a you know, uh, the next greatest and grandest version of me and that I could grow just because I decided to um, had never entered my head. Nobody had ever taught me that until Neil said that. But it is just those words. I just heard you say that in an interview. And just, I love the words, be the greatest, grandest version of yourself. It's like, you're like a caterpillar um, becoming a butterfly. You can just shed off your cocoon. Um, and yes, yes. The next greatest and grandest version of yourself. Um, uh, what you a great mantra to wake up to. Or have it all worked out or even know what that greatest and grandest version is, is going to do. You can just be. <laughs> and right, that will right. change the energy around you and the universe will come to meet you. Yes. So we need to wrap it up. But what would you say from struggles now to, I mean, I look at your bio and all you're doing and it's 
it's just so, so amazing and inspiring. What, what have you, um, what have you learned? What have been your greatest lessons? Um, what have I learned? I feel, well, I, the reason I'm hesitating is I feel like I have so much more to learn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel particularly wise at all. I have learned that um, in the clinic, I've learned that people heal when they feel safe and that all the good healers I met created safety for people. And um, we live in a, a, a culture that um, doesn't prioritize that. Um, uh, and, and, you know, thanks to a lot of ego projection makes the world, um, somewhat unsafe for people. And I have just, you know, people heal, they, they unwind their, their trauma when they feel safe. Uh, I've learned that we store pain in our bodies, in, in our energy fields, in little pain bodies. And then we're very unconscious of those pain bodies. And part of my job these days, I do a lot of it on Zoom and I literally just help people move their pain bodies because if we don't wow. let them expand, um, uh, they, they have a story attached to them that runs us. And I often, wow. you know, listen to that story and it, it usually ends up with, I, I won't survive because it's usually from childhood. So it's like, if I don't do what yes. everybody wants, then nobody will love me and I won't survive. Or, you know, that's a, an abbreviated right. version of it. So I do a lot of that. Um, so I've learned that. And I, I genuinely now understand that we are the connection between heaven and earth because we embody consciousness and that we rippled yes. out of the Tao and that our loved ones and we ripple back into the Tao, but their energy, their consciousness does not leave. Um, uh, you know, energy is transformed. It doesn't, it doesn't end. Uh, and so the, the part of us that makes us alive is our consciousness, our awareness, and that continues. And it has given me great peace. I think being scared of losing people you love um, and, you know, I'm still scared, obviously, because I'm human, but, um, or scared of dying yourself and ending. I think I, um, I, I've been much less fearful since I realized, oh, I'm just a little ripple in the Tao and I will ripple yes. back and all will be well. Yes. Has it changed the way I'm sure it has just how you personally, Jill Blakeway walks, walks in your life? Yes. I'm much less reactive than I was. This writing this book changed me and it was very good preparation actually for what's happened recently because, you know, our centers have had to shut down in New York for three months due to COVID. We didn't fire our stuff. Yeah. So it was extraordinarily expensive and precarious to do that. And um, I think I would be much more scared if I, if I didn't know I was just a little ripple in the towel. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, Very good know, I, uh, it's been one long serenity prayer, this whole um, coronavirus situation, if you're running a business in New York. And I have focused on the things I can control, which is helping patients on Zoom. And I've completely let go of the stuff I can't. And I don't think I'd have been able to do that before I wrote this book. Right. Well, Jill, thank you so much for today. I know you're a very busy woman, and this has just been a joy. And um, just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thanks for asking such interesting questions. That was a really fun <laughs> chat. Yes, you're very welcome. And hopefully I'll make it out to one of your, one of your centers one of these days. I would love that. We would love to see you. 
Yes, yes. Well, thank you. And if people want to find you, what's the best way? Um, you can find me at unovacenter.com, Y-I-N-O-V-A center, um, spelt the American way.com. Uh, and I'm still just a practitioner. I, I like treating patients. So you can find me in my office yeah. doing what I've always been doing which is looking up people. Um, and we have a lively blog over there and um, we have lively social media. My colleagues are massively smart and interesting. So um, uh, come and find us. Very nice. Well, thank you so much. And you have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.